For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're continuing in Romans. We're in Romans chapter 12 again, talking about community. This is a, this is a, a picture of the Ukrainian parliament. Uh, they take their governing seriously. And we were a little worried this is what it might look like when home groups work out their territories this morning. Um, but you guys did good. You did well. Um, but yeah, this is about getting together, you know, and that's hard. You know, the way that we see each other, the way that we treat each other, um, the way that we love one another, according to Jesus, is supposed to be the thing that sets us apart as his followers. Our love for one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. That's the defining point the way that we treat one another. And that idea fits perfectly in the flow of thought of Romans as we work through and have been working through this book. We're in this section, this last section of this great book, chapters 12 through 15, which is really all about spiritual transformation, having laid the groundwork uh, of what Jesus' death on the cross has meant, the, uh, the way it has changed our relationship with God and the way it has the potential to change our relationships with each other, Paul is now moving into the really practical parts of what it looks like to follow after God, to let him into our lives and let him change our lives because he wants to use us as an example. He wants to use us as lights, he says, in the midst of a dark world. That there are billions of people who don't know what real love is, who don't know that they're important, that they're fearfully and wonderfully made, that God has a plan for them and God wants to relate to them and that God created us to have relationships with one another. They don't know that. And that a big part of God's plan, a huge part of God's purpose, is to use us together so that we could walk with him in community. And so the last time we were in Romans, we just did Romans chapter 12. We just did verses 1 and 2, which were about living your whole life for God. And we talked about it in the framework of there are really two decisions that, you, that God wants you to make. One is a one-time decision, a permanent decision on whether or not you want to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, whether you want to be reconciled to God by Jesus' death on the cross. And that's a moment where you turn to God in faith and you open your heart and you say, I realize that I cannot do this on my own, that... Um, I'm broken, and I need you to come into my life, and I need you to be my God, and I will be your child, but I need Jesus' death on the cross to apply to me so that my sins can be paid for, and I can be reconciled to you. That's that one-time decision. But then there's the second decision, and the second decision is an ongoing decision. It's not a one-time decision. It's a moment-by-moment -moment decision where we choose whether or not to let God's light shine through us, whether we are going to bring our own desires, our own will, our own priorities, our own sense of what is best for self, or whether we are going to choose God's way. And let love and mercy and patience and kindness, the things that matter to God, let those things rule in our lives in a moment-by-moment decision-making process that the book of Romans calls walking with God. Choosing not just to come to church on Sunday morning, but to bring God into every moment and every aspect of our lives. And that's scary. It's scary, and we talked about what the word worship means, right, from Romans 12. This idea that, you know, what does it mean to be a worshiper? And we say, well, you know, you want to keep your spirituality in its proper abode. You don't want to, you know, be this, one, you know, this Jesus freak who runs around, you know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all the time. And people are just like, oh, I'm sick of your Jesus stuff, right? And we have this, you know, this narrative. We, have, we all know somebody 
who uh, has uh, portrayed their faith in that way, and they got the, the cross T-shirts, and they're never happy people, right? They're, 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 they're weird people, and it's not attractive. And we say that, that that's the characterization. That's what it looks like to live your life for God. And that's what the enemies of God want you to believe, that that's what it looks like. Just to be somebody, you know, with disheveled hair and a wild look in your eye, talking about Jesus, you know. But that's not what God is calling for. That's not what a life lived for God looks like. A life lived for God looks like love. And so we think about what it looks like to, to make that second decision to, to live your whole life for God, and we think about fear of failure. I don't know, God, that I want to be in a position where I let people know that I'm a follower of yours because I, I could misrepresent you very easily. It's why I don't have a fish on my car because I don't want to drive like a Christian, right? I want to drive like I want to drive. And so I need to maybe repent, not put a fish on my car, but think about, you know, letting God into that area of my life, right? But what are the areas where you're refusing to let God into your life and you don't want to represent Him because you're afraid that you'll fail? That's a real thing that we have to think about, living your whole life for God and what that looks like and experiencing the doubt on the one hand, I don't want to be a freak. On the other hand, I don't want to fail. I don't feel equipped. I don't feel like I'm to be this great ambassador for Jesus. I feel like I'm barely keeping my life together, or maybe I'm not even keeping my life together. I'm a mess. But what we, what we said was, God looks at that answer and says, I can work with that. What God can't work with is someone who says, I'm amazing, and God, you're so lucky to have someone like me as your representative. You just sit back and relax, Lord, and let me shine. That's where God says, I can't work with that. I can't help you. Those were the Pharisees. Those were the people that Jesus said were whitewashed to him. They were the blind leading the blind. But it was the sinners. It was the prostitutes. It was the tax collectors who said, I'm so sinful, Jesus. Why do you even want to be near me? He was like, because I'm the doctor that came to heal the sick. You're exactly. And as broken and as messed up as your life might feel in this moment right now, when you let God come into your life and begin to move you and change you and grow you, and you begin to become the person that God created you to be, the contrast of what a mess you were and of what God can do in your life is a monument to his glory. The more messed up you are, the better. Because the more people will look at you and say, what supernatural power in the universe made you a loving person? And the answer is, that's exactly right. That's what it took to get me out of my worship of self. It took the power of God. You see, as we look at this picture, God doesn't intend that we do this alone. God wants us to do it with him by the power of his spirit, through the wisdom of his word, but he wants us to also have each other, our relationships with each other, so that as we are fearful and as we fall and as we trip and as we screw up and as we, we hurt that we have other people to come alongside and say, look, this isn't the blind leading the blind. This is the wounded carrying the wounded. We're just going to come together and, and we're going to agree that we can't do this, that we're not good enough, but we are going to do it together. And that together, God works through us in ways that he cannot work through us on our own. So he continues on with this line of thinking here in Romans 12, three through eight, he says, for though the grace, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound 
judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. He paints this picture of the connectedness of the community of God's children and that they're supposed to function in this way that's beautiful. And we struggle with this. We struggle with this without even understanding because we are a part of a culture, American culture, that is based and rooted very much in the idea of autonomy and what Alexis de Tocqueville in his 1800, uh, late 1800s, he wrote um, Democracies. He wrote this book that was a reflection. He was a French a political scientist who came over and wanted to figure out how, how did America, what was it about America that made it great, that made democracy work? It was this great experiment. And he said, you know, one of the things, one of the great observations he made about American culture uh, almost 200 years ago, he's, he coined this phrase. He said they, are, they have this rugged individualism. And he looked as a, you know, as a, a, a Frenchman coming over here looking at American society. And, you know, at this point, everybody lived on their farms, right? And there was so much land. Like, everybody could live, like, five miles from their nearest neighbor. And they did, right? I mean, they would move out, and they would start these farms. And the idea was that you and your family would have this farm, and your children would work, and you would work, and you would provide, and you know, your, your, uh, your family would sew its own clothes and, uh, and provide its own food, and you would grow up, and you would live this life together, and you wouldn't need anybody, certainly a government, to tell you what to do. We are a nation that was defined by the idea of independence, of not needing anyone. And there are beautiful things to that. There are things of value to that. But at the heart of who we are, and as we have grown and changed as a culture, it's still very much at the heart of who we are that we want to be completely self-sufficient and independent. Because in our minds as Americans, that constitutes strength. I want to be strong, I want to be protected, and I want the things that I love to be protected, which means that I have to depend on outside sources, people, structures, governments, whatever. I have to depend on them as little as possible. I have to be as self-sufficient as I possibly can, economically, emotionally, and spiritually rugged individuals. And we have this schizophrenia in our culture as a result. Because we're made by God to need one another, according to the scriptures, yet we believe that needing others is weak. And this war rages inside all of us. It's a part of our culture. It's a part of who we are. And so we say, of course, I want to care for others. I want to be a loving person. No one is like... I do not want to be a loving person, right? Very few people. I can only see two of you here now. Right? I mean, we want to care for other people, but we don't want people to depend on us. How does that work? I want to give you love, and I want to be there for you, and I want you to know that I am your friend, and when you struggle, you can count on me. We all want that, and and we all want to be a friend like that. But then we all look at the mess that our friends are in, and we're like, don't push it too far. Because if you get too messy, unfriend, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, I have my own problems. I don't want to wade into your mess, right? How do you have both? How are you able to care for others, but not wanting others to depend on you or to think they can depend on you. We want to be known, right? We want to be understood. So many of us have had that experience of of that inward reflection of who knows the real me. 
How well understood am I, actually? We spend a lot of time putting up fronts and trying to convince people that we are a certain way. We want people to see us the way we want to be seen, not the way that we really are. And then we wonder and we get sad because no one knows the real us. When we spend all of our time and energy doing PR and, conf- and creating an image that we know is not the real us. And then we feel lonely and broken and, we f- and fearful. If anybody did know the real me, I don't think they would like me. I don't like me all that much. So we want to be known, but we don't want people in our business. I want you to be in my life, but I want you to keep a safe distance where I can keep up the facade. If you get too close, I can't trick you into thinking I am who I want you to see. And the cracks and the veneer will begin to fall off and you'll begin to see that I have real problems. I can't afford, I can't trust to let you that close into my life because you would see that my marriage is struggling, that my my, my children and I don't have a good relationship, that my finances are messed up, or that I have an anger problem. You would see the real mess of who I am. And so I want to be known, and I desperately try to find connections with people, but I have to work so hard at keeping those connections at arm's length so that I can live a lie and wonder, why aren't I known? I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. You know, you look at history, and you look at the great things that have happened in history, and you look at the way that there are times where, you know, seemingly once in a generation there is something that happens, and when humanity comes together and they dedicate themselves to something, they can overcome, they can, they can surge forward, that great things can happen when you don't feel like you're connected to something like that, you feel like, you know, I'm missing out. There's something, there's, there's something more. There's something that I'm supposed to be connected to that means something. And so we look and we cast about looking for how to be a part of something that is greater than who we are, that we could, we could participate in, in something of greatness. But we also want to be in control of our environment. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. Do you see the schizophrenia, the the brokenness of this way of thinking? If you want to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself, then you have to get engaged. And you have to allow it to influence you, to affect your priorities. You're going to have to make sacrifices. That's how things that are greater than ourselves happen is people get together and they, they put the mission, the purpose the common bond of what it is that they want to do above their personal priorities. And they sacrifice together. And if you get enough people willing to sacrifice what is individually best in their own good for the greater good, that's how you make history. And we look at that and we respect that. We say, oh, you know, to live in a time where we could be a part of something like that. And God's like, hello, eternity, the greatest opportunity ever. The greatest thing that you could take part in is changing the face of eternity and helping people come to a knowledge of him. The greatest battle that's ever been waged is ongoing. The most important struggle in all of human history, we are smack dab in the middle of that. It's to seek and to save that which was lost. That's greater than anything that any one individual or that any human organization or institution has ever been a part of. (laughs) And we cast about saying, I wish there was something I could define myself by or that I could join that would be greater than myself. And it's right there. Here's the point. You cannot be autonomous and intimate. You cannot be independent and dependent. 
There's, a, there's a going to be a rub. There's going to be a sacrifice. And when we read passages like what we just read from Romans 12, we are confronted, I hope, with a tension that we are supposed to do this together, that we are supposed to be a body of believers together, and that God uses us together far more powerfully than he could ever use us alone. But it's going to mean sacrifice. <clears throat> it's going to mean getting messy. Relationships in America are in decline. It's well established. Robert Putnam in his book, Bowling Alone, that book's now 15 years old, so the data's getting a little uh, ancient. But he went out and, uh, and studied uh, this, uh, this question of our culture. How much are we spending time together? Right? And he found that we are more alone, more medicated, more dysfunctional, and more miserable than any culture in history. We're also more wealthy, more comfortable, more placated, and more entertained. How does that work? <laughs> what is friendship? Who are your friends? What are the quality of your relationships, your connectedness with other people? We're more connected than anyone else in history, too. We can push and receive information. You know, I remember we used to have these things. They were called debates. And what you would do is this was before the Internet, right? You would sit around with a bunch of guys on a Friday night, you know, we would have our, our Bible study, our men's Bible study, and then someone would be like, who's the greatest running back in history? And you'd be like, oh, yeah, it's on, right? Because everybody had an idea, and we would quote stats, and we would, you know, well, who had the most yards or, you know, the most uh, touchdowns in a career? Well, how many seasons did they play and all these things? And you could just lie <laughs> because if somebody wanted to challenge you, you would have to wait, get up in the morning, and go to the library, <laughs> right, and check out a reference to see if they were full of it or not. And it was great sport. You could have an entire evening of just lying to each other. <laughs> now what happens when you have an argument like that, someone goes, Siri, who's the greatest running back of all time, <laughs> right? And you have all the data, all the information there at once. And it's the same thing, you know, we can, we can tell our friends that we're going to the grocery store and we can publish what we're buying and, and post a video of the recipe that we're going to make. And then we get our kids together and we say, smile, and we create an image that we want to post to the world because we want them to see when they think about us and they want to, what are the Lowry's doing for dinner tonight? And they're, they're all smiling. <laughs> And here's the recipe, and, and, you know, here's the video of how to make. And you sit there, and you think, wow, their life is so much better than ours, right? It's PR. It's just a way of taking a snapshot of, of, of what we maybe idealistically, the, the parts of us that we want to be seen and shared. But no one runs around, you know, hold on, we're in a big fight. i got a video of this for Facebook, you know. My kid had bad grades. Let's get the camera rolling, honey. Come on. We're going to talk to them about this. We want the world to see. It's a facade. It's fake. In his book, he talks about this, that, you know, in American culture, having a neighbor over for dinner is down 33% in the last 25 years, right? The idea that you would be in a neighborhood where somebody would come over and say, hey, do you want to come over and hang out with us for an evening? and have food and talk about stuff uh, is in serious decline. Attendance at clubs and meetings down 58% in the last 25 years. Family dinner down 33%. Real interactions, real meaningful, not sound bites, not tweets, but conversations, spending time together is going down as joy and love and purpose and community 
and ultimately sanity are fleeting from our culture as well. Having friends over to your home down 45%. Bowling up 10%. (laughs) Which is the point, you know, the whole idea of this book, the title is Bowling Alone because more people are bowling now than ever, but 40% fewer are doing it in a league. You see why we're bowling alone. We're, We're not connecting with each other the way that we're supposed to in community. C.S. Lewis, in the 50s, his book, In the Four Loves, wrote this, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world in comparison ignores it. He's writing this in the 50s, remember. We admit, of course, that besides a wife and family, a a man needs a few friends. That's probably gone today. But the very tone of the admission and the sort of acquaintanceships which those who make it would describe as friendships show clearly that what they are talking about has very little to do with what philia, which Aristotle classified among the virtues. Real friendship, to be known, to be needed, to be depended upon, and to be involved in each other's mess has been replaced by simulated relationships. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of playing Guitar Hero. Guitar Hero is this amazing thing because I cannot play any instrument, right? I took piano lessons, I took saxophone lessons, clarinet, and failed miserably at all of it, right? Just not, but I love music, right? And somebody came along and they created something that looks like a guitar, kind of feels like a guitar, and it's got a lever that you mash, right? And buttons up here, and all of a sudden, you're Jimi Hendrix in front of an audience. And the game's designed for that way. So, you know, you're just like, you know, and the crowd, and they rate you, and all of a sudden, it's this simulated experience of playing a guitar. Well, Something that uh, I could never do, and even if I could, the amount of work and time that would go into having that real experience would take a lifetime of dedication. But for 50 bucks, you can be Hendrix, man. (laughs) If even just for a short time, you have, it's a simulated achievement, right? And we have this. You can look at how many Facebook friends. You feel alone, and you go count your friends in Facebook and, and, and you know, poke them and press like, and you feel as though you've related to them somehow, that you've made a connection, and tweet something about you. And maybe somebody, you know, what do you do? You tweet, and then you're like, Come on, somebody, somebody respond. Somebody show me that you're, you're out there, that you're listening. Have I been heard? How many followers do I have? How valuable am I in the eyes of other people? Or you level up in the world of Warcraft, right? And you create these uh, journeys and these quests where you go out and you fight the monsters and you get rewards and you become more and more powerful as a result and you need to do it in connection with other people. I love the, there's an episode of South Park where they depict this, you know, and these guys are like these mighty warriors who have, and then they show them at home and they're like, on their mouse, you know, just all heavy and broken out and and, and unshowered, you know, and they're like, I cast my magic missile at you, you know, and you're looking at this and it's like the simulated reality versus the reality of what's happening here. You are a child of God fearfully and wonderfully made for a noble and beautiful purpose. You have something within you that is so incredible, so beautiful, and so amazing, and it is meant to be shared, not simulated. And so, of course, we have simulated sexual relationships, too. 
And this is something, I don't know if you were here for our meeting uh, yesterday morning, but we're talking more about this because the research is coming out in the secular world. What's so interesting is the secular world is coming out and saying, maybe this isn't such a good idea just to have porn everywhere. That it's affecting the, the brain. It's changing chemically the way that people's brains work, and, and it's having a physiological impact. That young boys are growing up disinterested in relationships with the opposite sex because they are so enamored with their iPhone and feel as though all their needs are being met. So, you know, on the one hand, we don't want to say these three things here are evil. Facebook's not evil in and of itself. We're not saying that, you know, if you play a video game or two or World of Warcraft or Twitter, that they're, you know, that they're objectly evil. But they can re- begin to replace real experiences, experiences that you need. Well, pornography is evil. I mean, our culture will fight us on that now. Turn it into an issue of <laughs> free speech. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that we would have the right to put those images in each other's minds, that you want the right to put those images in my child's mind. It's evil. And many of us struggle with it. I mean, it's, it's something that's real. But we have to, we have to look at this and say, what are, what, are, what are you, what need are you looking to be met here? And what are you bypassing in the real world your marriage, date night, connecting emotionally, not just physically with your spouse, or getting out of the house and dating and meeting people and having a social life. These simulated experiences are designed to convince us that we don't need anybody, but that is not how we are made. What's the number one thing that's truly presenting us from having close relationships? Paul already told us what it is. Right there in verse 3, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. There it is right there. It's pride. I don't need anyone. I am self-sufficient. And I am good enough to make it on my own. So fascinating that he understands the human condition that before he really launches into this idea of how much we need each other, he, re- he addresses up front 2,000 years ago the very heart of what keeps us from intimacy today. Because for all of our technology and all of our advancement and all of our comfort and all of our information and all of the things that we have, we are no different from the humans 2,000 years ago. It is pride. It is thinking more of ourselves than we ought that keeps us from real intimacy, the real intimacy with each other that we need. Believing we can be okay without meaningful relationships. And we live in the most independent culture ever, where we're told needing others is weak. Exposing our weakness to others will allow them to take advantage of us that a smart person, a shrewd person, a strong person never depends on anyone else. And we have different versions of this. Some of us, it's just me. And then we have another version where we say, it's just my family. Just me, my spouse, and my kids against the world. And that's a great way to drive your kids nuts. (laughs) The people who do that, they say, we're going to shut off. We're going to build the walls high, and we're going to shut out the dangerous world. And, you know, we're just going to be the four, the five of us. We're just going to be like the homesteaders of old, and we're going to be independent. We're going to protect ourselves. Your kids will run screaming from your home when they go to college because it's not enough. It's not enough. We need community, connectedness with others. God, 
At the very beginning, put it this way in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helpable, suitable to him. And that is so true. And we have learned, devised a culture where we can suffer in loneliness in the midst of a crowd. Go out to dinner tonight and look around the room, no matter where you go. And what you will see are people sitting at tables together, looking at their devices, staring up at the ceiling because there's a TV. The music will be blaring so loud wherever you go that you can't really have a conversation because that's the environment that people want now. That's what they seek. We want to be near each other, but not engaged with each other. It's simulated relationships. And our maker knows us and knows some deep things about us. And he says, it is not good for you to be alone. He goes on and says, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We are one, but we are individuals. I said earlier, you cannot have autonomy and intimacy, and that's true. But what you can have is individuality and community. We're not suggesting that we all become cookie-cutter people, stamped out, and we have the same strengths and the same weaknesses, and we wear the same clothes, and we eat the same food, and we like what each other likes. That is not community. That's not what we're talking about here, where everybody talks the same way and says the same things. No, we are individuals fearfully and wonderfully made by the hand of God, but connected with one another. In 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body, so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts. It's this great image. A hand is not the same as an arm, it's not the same as a foot. They're as different as can be, but you put them together, and you're a walking, talking Amazing mechanical feat of engineering where all the parts are individual characteristics working together for the common purpose to create you. And God says that's what, that's what this, that's what our community here is supposed to be like. Different parts with different strengths and different weaknesses working together for the same goal. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. You can resist this and you can say, I don't wanna be what I am. I wanna be something else. But you are who you are and you have a role created specifically for you. There's no use bragging about what part you are or lamenting about what part you're not. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. Many different individuals playing different roles, coming together to contribute to one singular goal, to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, many religious organizations, many churches are not structured this way. Typically in the American church, it goes like this. God has pastors who are connected to him, and the pastors dish out the spiritual stuff to the audience, to the church. And we're very comfortable usually with that arrangement because the pastors are all too happy to be the great men, the ones who stand up, and they create facades. Because what you want to see is you want to see that your pastor is more spiritual and more kind and and more wonderful and, and smarter and a better preacher. 
You want those people to look great so that when somebody says, what church do you go to? You can be like, have you seen Joel Olstein? <laughs> He's got it together. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, sorry. <laughs> the pastors are happy to play those roles and the people are happy to play those roles because they can go and they can do their part and they can come to Sunday morning and they don't have to be engaged. They can receive, they can consume, have their consciences seated, and go home, get about, get about their day, and not worry about the spiritual stuff until next Sunday. The pros lead, and they counsel and preach. The laity, they play roles, they usher, they welcome people, they have a bake sale, but they're not counted on to do the heavy lifting, the heavy spiritual lifting. We save that for the pros. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some of his pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. That's what the community is supposed to be about, equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The body has different Parts. They are independent, but they are interdependent. Striving toward the same goal under the leadership of the head, and the head of the body is Jesus Christ. We all serve and follow the same leader in our different roles. And unity doesn't mean we're the same, but it means that we strategically take advantage of our differences. We figure out how we're different and how our strengths complement one another so that we can accomplish the greater goal, serving God and loving our fellow man. Since we have gifts in chapter chapter 12, verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith if service in the serving, or he who teaches in teaching, or he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, and he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Each of the things that we bring into the table, we bring it together under the leadership of God, and we find that we are part of something that is greater than ourselves, that has a purpose etched in eternity. Everyone is in it. Not to receive, but to contribute. Not to be consumers, but contributors. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you why you might come to hate Xenos. Xenos is not like that. Xenos is not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. We have all kinds of broken things where we can improve and we can get better. But at the heart of who we are, we are dedicated to not serving you the way you might want to be served. From the very top of our leadership down, we do not see who we are as being here to give you a great spiritual experience. And that's pretty unusual. I'm sure that there are other places where that's true as well. But it is very much at the heart of the way our church and the leadership of our church, we are not here to serve you in that way. Now, some of you are probably saying, I always thought that was true, but I can't believe they're actually admitting it, right? (laughs) And some of you are saying, oh, I, I felt that. But now that I see that, it explains so much, right? But it's true. At the core of we are, we have no interest in providing you with a beautiful spiritual service. That's something that I hear a lot when I go and visit other churches. People afterwards, they say, and you say, well, what did you think of the service? And oh, it was beautiful. That service was so beautiful. The flowers and the lighting and the robes, it was a beautiful service. Look around. <laughs> you know, 
Joel Olstein, I ain't, right? <laughs> this, this is not who we are. It is not what we're trying to do. We are here to reach the lost, the unchurched. We are here to help the sick and to equip you to serve God and others. That is who we are. Imperfect, warts and all, but that is the heart of how we see ourselves. Yes, we want to share God's love, and we want to come along, and we want to put our arms around each other, and we want to help each other through the hard things. I'm not saying, you know, it's this cold-hearted, you know, you know battle where we shoot our wounded. Sorry, got to keep going, you know. <laughs> But that ultimately, at the end of the day, why are we here? It is not for this. It is not just to have a thing that we do that makes us feel better about ourselves. It's to equip the saints for the work of service, to go out into a world that is destroying itself and bring light and love and truth. To love one another with God's love, as we pour that love out on those who don't know God, just like Jesus did. And the consumer mentality will frustrate you deeply here. You will be unhappy. And frankly, there are plenty of churches you can go where if what you're looking for is an enjoyable Sunday morning experience, you are in the wrong place. And we are not going to change because we know that there are lots of places that you can get that. But as far as we know, this is one of the few places you can get something else. Again, not that we're unique, not that we're the best, but that we believe fervently that this is who God has called us to be, to raise up disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, to send you out into the world with a support system and an equipping and a savvy, bathed in prayer, rooted in God's grace, but to have your focus be outward and not inward. So we won't have beautiful flowers and professional lighting we won't have smoke machines, an incredible band. That's, that's how you create a beautiful service. And that's not who we feel that we are called to be. And all those other organizations that will provide those things for you, all they want for you to do is to show up, give, and not cause any problems. And if you do that, you're a superstar. You will be beloved. If you come here with that mentality, we will come for you and say, we don't want you just to sit in a chair, and we're very pleased that you give, and we need that support. But what you're giving to is an organization that's committed to getting you off your chair and into the fight. And we will not sit back and just watch people throw away what God could do with them. It's the difference between being a consumer and a contributor. A consumer says, my church should meet my needs. The contributor says, my church should equip me to serve others. The consumer says, I don't want to be burdened with others' problems. I have enough problems of my own. I just want a place where I can find a little comfort for an hour a week. The contributor says, I believe in fervently loving one another from the heart. And I want to be a part of something that is greater than myself. And I want to go out and I want to make a difference in the world for God's purposes. The consumer says, I'm too ashamed to let people know my real problems. I'm going to keep the facade. I'm going to keep people at a distance. I'm going to only get so close. Just CT on Sunday morning. I'm not going to talk with anybody. I'm not going to linger long. I'm certainly not going to go to a home group. Because then I will get in a situation where people see the real me. And I can't afford that. The contributor says, I want to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. 
I want to get into your mess. And I want to put my arms around you. And I want you to, to see my mess. And I'm going to say, let's, let's go be used by Jesus. Let's go change the world together. The consumer says, I don't have time to make a significant investment. Everything has to be kept in its proper abode. And, and, you know, I have X amount of time to devote to my spiritual life and nothing more. Where the contributor says, I will make time. I will find time for a robust life filled with the things of God, filled with the word of God, and filled with the people of God. Going out into the world who doesn't know God. I will make time for that because I believe that that matters and I will sacrifice for that because it's more important than my comfort, than my entertainment. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says, let us hold fast to the confession of our faith. Hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've got more, but I thought more of myself than I ought <laughs> and that I could get further along, and I, and I didn't. So why don't we just draw the line there? God, thanks for this. Thanks for our church. Thanks for um, the community that you've given us here. We certainly are not perfect. We, we have made so many mistakes along the way, and we're going to make mistakes moving forward, but we know that you died on the cross to cover our mistakes, and that that's not an excuse not to grow, God, but just a comfort that we can take knowing that you love us, that we are your children, and that as we imperfectly try to serve you, that as long as we're willing to tell you yes, as long as we're willing to be faithful, we can move forward and grow and be used by you in greater ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.